In this episode of 92i Talks, Watergate journalist Bob Woodward discusses his new book, Fear, Trump in the White House, announced as the most acute and penetrating portrait of a sitting president ever published during the first years of an administration. Slate's Jacob Weisberg moderates. The conversation was recorded on September 12, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Um, I thought I'd, I'd start, Bob. It's, it's an honor to be doing this with you here tonight, I, I should say, and I, and I love this book. Um, maybe just read a couple tweets just to get started. Um, this won't take too long. Um, uh, Must-read column by Bob Woodward explaining how Obama pushed for sequestration and promised no tax increase. Only the Obama White House can get away with attacking Bob Woodward. Thank you to Bob Woodward, who said, etc., etc. Now, who could have written those? Yeah, uh, Trump. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in, even last uh, month, he called me. And he wondered why he hadn't been interviewed for the book. And I had tried many people. And he said, well, you know, people are afraid to talk to him. He acknowledged a, a little of this. Uh, but then he said, I've, he said, you've always treated me fairly. Now the book is out. He's changed his mind. Yeah. Um, for, I, I thought that was an extraordinary tape of that, that interview with him. I want to ask you about that in a second. But one thing you can say about Trump for sure is he's media savvy. He's incredibly, he's a massive consumer of media. I think you talk about him watching 68 hours of television a day. He actually does seem to read the New York Times uh, and other papers. He's, he knows what background means. He knows, he knows his way around the media. How could he be so naive as to be surprised? I mean, do you think there's any, is he, is he sincerely, is he sincere in, in saying that he thinks he was done wrong or is this just, just his usual act? Uh, you know, easier to describe the creation of the universe. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot of uncertainty about, you know, what is driving him, but I, one of the themes of the book is there is an alternative reality which he has, which he creates. And uh, he just, you know, has certain views and they're scene after scene where one of the people in the White House, where did you get that? He said, well, I've always thought that for 30 years. Uh, well, and then he'll, he'll just say, if you disagree with me, you're wrong. Yeah. And that's it. And there's not, I mean, they bring in uh, Gary Cohen, uh, who's the chief economic advisor to Trump uh, in the White House, was, had been the president of a uh, little investment bank called Goldman Sachs, and uh, had uh, literally made billions of dollars for his clients, hundreds of millions of dollars for himself. And uh, if you know anything about Goldman Sachs, it's data-driven. If, uh, you know, they'll bring in piles of evidence and studies and reports, economic data, and he would take things like this to Trump. And it was just, you know, I don't care about that. I, uh, they come in on the World Trade Organization. It sounds like an abstraction, but it's, it's real. And uh, Trump says, this is the world's worst organization. We never win a case. And Cohen says, well, uh, gee, uh, you, United States has won 85.7%, and not just 85%, but 85.7. And Trump, I don't care, I don't care, I, that's not right. Well, call your people, call your trade representative. No, I'm not gonna do that. So th there is just a, you know, the veil comes down and uh, he's, he's going to live in, in that cave that he's created. And there's this tremendous simplification of, of the world. I think at, at one point in the book, you reproduce his handwriting, which finally uh, d distills his view of trade. Trade is bad. Yes. That's his view. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, this is the nationalism, this is the isolation, this is the, now he never, in fairness to him, never said that, but he actually wrote it out in trying to revise a speech. And if, if you dig 
into this, uh, you see that's really kind of his view, that somehow if we have a trade deficit with the country, they are stealing money from us, which 99.9% of economists would say is not the case. But Trump found two who would agree with him, Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. And so Trump and those two people, and uh, left, right, Democrats, uh, Republicans, just you know, say you, you shouldn't do these things, and it's the wall. Yeah, and the, there is, there's lots of in the book about trade, and it's, it does seem to be one area where he has had a consistent view say what you will about it over a long period of time. And he's constantly trying to act on his views to pull out of the US-Korea trade agreement, to pull out of NAFTA, to, to attack the WTO, to uh, add more tariffs on China right now. And there are people around him other than those two who are fighting a, a rearguard action against him. Yes, but he says, no, I'm going to do it. and. They can't stop him, and he calls the like on the issue of, of steel tariffs, uh, which just make no economic sense. Yeah. I mean, there are documents I have that uh, I quote from from the Pentagon, from uh, the State Department, saying we uh, steel tariffs uh, don't work, don't help, and uh, so he sneaks the steel uh, the steel executives into the White House. Uh, in March of this year and uh, announces steel tariffs. And even General Kelly, who's the chief of staff, didn't know that Trump was doing this. So as people try to stop him, he forges ahead. Yeah, that, that tape you put up on the Washington Post of, of him explaining, you're claiming that he hadn't, um, didn't know that you wanted to interview him was, was fascinating. But his view seemed to be that um, your book was going to be wrong on the facts, and this has been his view since it came out, because it did not include the fact that he's the greatest president of all time. Yeah, I left that out. <laughs> uh, if you included it, he'd still be saying, Woodward is fair, everyone knows. Yeah. Well, but you know what? This is you drive toward what's inside him. What's it, it, what's it all about? One thought I had is, all presidents, and the, Trump is the ninth president that I've written about, and Ken Burns uh, mentioned to me uh, some time ago, he said, you know, you will have written books and journalism in the Washington Post on 20% of our presidents. Nine wow. out of 49. <laughs> I, I wasn't around for Calvin Coolidge. Uh, but uh, there, I, I hope you get another one to write about very soon. Uh, 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 we'll see. We'll see. You know. But see, I we, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Uh, people didn't think Trump could be elected. Uh, it was all improbable. But there's something uh, when you read biographies or autobiographies of presidents. There's uh, they all start talking about one at one point or another about destiny that somehow this was not an accident. And there is a self-validation when you were elected president that gives you, you know, I know how to do this. In Trump's case, everyone was telling him, no, it will never work, it's not gonna happen, and he wins. He'd never been on the city council. He'd never done anything in government. So it puts his feet deeper in more cement about, I'm, Right, I've got it. And all presidents, I think, have the disease of isolation. And I think he, in a, in a much greater way, and this is why in the book you see people close to him taking papers off his desk or having to tell him things or argue with him. Uh, he's created uh, this Trump world and uh, he is also conducting a war on truth. Yeah. Whenever somebody comes in with something and something is true, it's warfare yeah. if he doesn't like it or disagrees. And how do, I think as uh, the press, we are still dealing and haven't figured out how to navigate this problem of how do you cover a president 
where there is no presumption that what he says is true. Um, because every president probably lies to some degree. But you have details. My, my newspaper, the Washington Post, has, has 4,272 uh, counting and uh, lies or misrepresentations. And so it's, um, it, it's something, you're, you're exactly right, that's kind of stumped the press. I mean, counting is not enough. You have to uh, write about the consequences of not dealing with reality. And I think the consequences are, are grave. And I think that uh, based on spending a year and a half trying to really look at the granularity of the Trump decision making uh, presidency, that uh, it, the people who know the most consider him a threat to national and national security and financial security. Yeah, I mean, uh, David Fahrenthold, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at The Post, um, did a brilliant thing when instead of trying to prove that Trump hadn't contributed to charities before running for president, he tried to prove that he had contributed to charity and couldn't prove it. Uh, and I sometimes think we have the same problem with in, inverting our assumption with, with every other president, it's been presume truthful until proven to be not telling the truth. But with Trump, we can't assume that. So how do we recalibrate around that? And uh, I, I think the answer is in-depth reporting. Specific, what I found is let's not look at the lies. Let's not look at the Mueller investigation. Both of those are very important. But ultimately, what does he do as president? How, what, how did the North Korean uh, policy develop. Uh, how about Afghanistan? How about the Middle East? How about taxes, trade? All of these core issues which really define life for people in this country. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a bobsled ride <laughs> when you, get, you see uh, it um, some, you know, I, I hate to say this, but this is a, an analytical point. He does not understand his own best interest often. Yeah. Well, clearly, I mean, you're, you're famous for your neutrality and letting your reporting speak for itself. This book, I have to say, having read the vast majority of your books, felt a little different. I mean, starting with the cover, you know, it was hard not to see this as the in, invert, inversion of the Obama Hope poster. You know, but I, I felt like uh, was that that was conscious, wasn't it? I mean, the, you know, one word for Trump is fear. I mean, it just felt like from the very first page, I felt like I knew what you thought. Well, actually, there's some good things in there, and uh, the, like uh, the dealings in the Middle East. He actually develops a policy and goes to Saudi Arabia and builds an alliance uh, with Saudi Arabia with the Gulf. Cooperation Council countries with Israel uh, to, uh, you know, this is a very strong alliance against Iran, which is one of the great worries. So uh, I tried to keep it neutral and repertorial, but fear comes from his own mouth. Yes. When Bob Costa, young, great reporter at the Post, and I interviewed Trump two and a half years ago when he was on the verge of getting the Republican nomination. And we asked him, we were asking some broad, interesting questions and addressing the issue of power, because the presidency really is about power, isn't it? And quoted some Obama comment about real power is not having to use violence. And Trump, you know, uh, finally said, I mean, it was almost a Shakespearean moment where he said, real power is, I don't like to use the word fear. And the way it was uh, Hamlet, uh, his aside to the audience of, this is what I really think, and it's about this is how you exercise power. Yeah. You scare the hell out of people. <laughs> and uh, you see a lot of that in the book. You see a lot of that in Trump's performance in life before he became president. 
But there's a clear message here that the man in the White House is dangerous and that no one can protect us from him. Yes, and, that, and that's the words of the people and the actions of the people who are there. And it's, it's vivid in scene after scene. And he, it's, it's most interesting because presidents, I think all of them, live in the unfinished business of their predecessor, like Obama told Trump, You're, what's gonna keep you up at night is North Korea. And uh, at the same time, presidents inherit a framework, this, uh, the way business was done. And you can change it, but you can't uh, abrogate it. You can't destroy it. And he's tried to. And there's this meeting uh, over at the Pentagon in July, which is, is a stunner because Gary Cohen, National Security, uh, uh, the economic ad advisor, and Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, uh, have formed an alliance. And they say, we've got to get Trump over here. We've got to, it's kind of like an offsite at the Greenbrier, uh, <laughs> but we're going to do it at the Pentagon because there are no televisions, there's no distraction. And he can't call out to his secretary, Madeline, and they, they try to educate him and they say there's, uh, as Mattis says, it's a, it's a great line, the great gift from the greatest generation is this world, uh, this rule-based international order. And Tillerson, then Secretary of State, says, this keeps the peace. And Trump just doesn't want to sign up to any of the old things and uh, just insults everyone, gets angry, discards, won't listen. and. Uh, at the end, Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is just deflated. It's just like, uh, you know, we tried. And this is when Tillerson says, uh, as accurately reported by NBC, that uh, he's a, should, should I say it, uh, effing moron. <laughs> yeah. And uh, You didn't say it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but he said it very plainly. And uh, that's... So that how do you manage yeah. power? I mean, that was one of those scenes, Bob, where just my, my jaw was on the floor because there you have the, the most senior and distinguished military leaders in the country. And Trump, you know, we know from elsewhere in the book, he, he sort of prefers people in uniform. I mean, he likes military leaders and gives them more respect than he gives anybody else. And in that meeting, he treats them the way bad people treat busboys in restaurants. I mean, he is, he is just, he just is so contemptuous of them and, and dismissive of them. And I mean, deflating would be, would be you know, a nice word, but his, his, his behavior with them is despicable. If he doesn't give them respect, is there anyone who can get respect from Donald Trump? Well, it's, but again, this is why fear fits. And uh, it is also, uh, I, I, I kind of think from studying all these presidents, that the most important characteristic a president can have is the ability to listen and grow and understand and accommodate uh, reality while directing the policy their way. And he just doesn't want to learn, doesn't want to listen. So many of these people who work for Trump justify working for him by telling themselves and presumably telling other people and telling you, it would be worse if I weren't there. We are protecting the public from his worst actions and his worst instincts. What do you think of that justification at but this point? It's actually more in the case, the, the prologue where Gary Cohen takes this uh, letter that would get us out of the uh, trade agreement with South Korea, and it kind of, oh, it's a trade agreement, but it's not. There's uh, a military agreement, there's very secret intelligence partnerships that give this country a degree of security that people don't understand, and this is all linked together, and so if you pull out of the trade agreement, you can start... It's a an, dotted line to nuclear war. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, if there's a job the president has is to not 
play around with that. I remember talking to interviewing President Obama once about this, and he said, everything is about keeping a nuclear weapon from going off in an American city. That is, and he, he said, all our intelligence operations are geared toward making sure that doesn't happen. And Trump is cavalier about this, but, but Gary Cohen, uh, instead of, of saying, uh, well, I'm just kind of, he, he says, gotta protect the country. This is, you, you begin the unraveling uh, and God knows what's gonna happen. And the same thing happens with uh, the trade agreement, NAFTA, there's a letter, you know, summarily, we're getting out of it and Cohen takes it. Uh, Rob Porter, the staff secretary, is doing all of this and uh, had told people, and I quote him saying, a third of his time is preventing bad things from happening. Yeah. But, you know, with my question again to you is, what do you ultimately think of that justification? This is an issue I've been struggling with since the beginning of the administration. At one level, I think we're worse off with Gary Cohn gone and H.R. McMaster gone. And, you know, I'd rather have relative, relatively competent people around him. At the same time, I kind of feel like they're kidding themselves. Well, you, you, it, it's not, you don't get to take a college course in philosophy uh, when you're confronted with that moment, oh my God, this is on the desk and he could get it formally drafted and sign it. And so you have to act. And uh, I, I think uh, these are acts of conscience uh, and courage. Uh, it, but it's not something that you should say, let's run the government this way. Let's have the president, there's the Trump track, and then there's the uh, sane track, where we're gonna have people coming around, uh, taking papers, uh, not implementing the policy. And literally, <clears throat> the chief of staff, General Kelly, has to send out a memo to everyone in the White House that says no more, uh, spur-of-the-moment decisions, no more seat-of-the-pants decisions. Uh, nothing is final until there's a formal process of review by cabinet officers and a decision memo signed by the president. And of course, this Good never takes that. off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you, uh, it's a little of, it's the Wild West. Yeah. And, um, Given the stakes internationally and to the global economy and the American economy, it's not, I, I would argue if you're a Trump supporter and you read this neutrally and you realized that it's uh, meticulously reported, you would, ha you would have to have pause. Yeah, this question about protecting the country from Trump's worst instincts is also the theme of the, the uh, anonymous New York Times op-ed. First, I got to ask you before someone else in the audience did. I won't ask you who wrote it. I'll give you my Oh, theory. I have it written down right here. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just going to give you my theory. It's actually not my theory. It's the theory that um, Will Salatan wrote in Slate, but I found very persuasive. He thinks it's John Huntsman, the ambassador to Russia whose views are a match, who doesn't have much loyalty to Trump, and whose denial was, was a very non-denial denial. What do you think, it was, think it might have, we might be right? I, I don't know, but it's important who that is. And uh, if it's the ambassador to Russia, it's not as if it's somebody key in the White House, as we well know ambassadors are isolated also. And if that person had come to me and said, gee, I'd like you to append this is an op-ed statement from me anonymously in your book, I would say, wait a minute, details. The, the building blocks of journalism are details. What exactly happened? Who was there? What was said? What was driving this? And the absence of that uh, leaves me kind of, well, what well, is you, this? You don't doubt that there's a real person who wrote it. Uh, I don't, because I don't think the New York Times would take that chance, but who's that real person? Okay. See, 
In uh, doing a book like this, the method is to go to people and say, okay, I want the full story. I want your notes. I want documents. I'm gonna, you're a confidential source. I'm not gonna name you. I'm gonna use everything you say. I'm gonna cross check it uh, within an inch of its life. And then you can go and see what happens in the situation room or the Oval Office at a specific time with specific issues and a kind of generalized uh, statement, uh, I, I, I'm not wild about that now. You know, maybe it's Melania or maybe it's, uh, <laughs> maybe it's somebody who really knows Trump. I'm not seriously suggesting that. I'm just saying some, it, it may be somebody in the White House who's there, who's a witness. The most important element in describing what really goes on is having witnesses, witnesses who are there or have diaries who will that you as a journalist or book author can build a relationship of trust with? I mean, whoever wrote it, it seems like a bit of a miscalculation, miscalculation in the way that some of the people who spoke to you may be feeling they miscalculated in that you say, I want to tell everybody that we're working to protect you from our dangerously paranoid president, but you do it in a way that spurs his paranoia and his dangerousness and makes him more dangerous. Yeah, well, that's, I, you know, it's, it's part of, I, it, it, it is what it is, but it, would, it doesn't meet the threshold of the kind of journalism that I think is really important, which is specific. Let's talk about your, your method a little bit and, and how it's evolved. But just to start out, I'm, I was making a little note as I was reading of, you know, probable sources in, in, for your book. Steve Bannon, Rob Porter, Lindsey Graham, John Dowd, Gary Cohn, uh, Tom Bossert, a little less, former Homeland Security people. So these, these are not very well, these people are not very well hidden. Their thoughts are described. Um, the question is, and I'm not asking you to confirm that there are sources, but when, when... Oh, I'm so glad you yeah. weren't going to ask. <laughs> yeah, because I, I know you give them up pretty easily. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll come back in 50 years. Yeah. But, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's not hard to read this and have, have a, a strong opinion about who the sources probably are. People are going to talk to you and not do a better job of hiding. Why not just talk on the record? Why not be quoted? Why not put actual quotation marks around their remarks? Um, well, there are actual quotation uh, remarks around lots of people, including uh, President Trump. Uh, that they are, you know, these, as you've seen, people deny some of these things and it's vague or it's, it doesn't have much weight. These are, are kind of uh, job security denials that where people don't, uh, they want to <clears throat> protect themselves, but they want to talk. And uh, this goes back to the Watergate coverage or the 18 books that I've done uh, involve using people <clears throat> who are confidential sources, who are participants and witnesses. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've never seen more ritualistic denials than in this case. I mean, it almost just seems like, you know, Trump said you have to deny it. They go through the motion with a, you know, very, they don't deny anything specifically. They say the book's inaccurate or doesn't portray what I, what I think. And, you know, what are, what, are they, what do they expect you to think when you see that, that you know they have to do that? You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic because, yeah. again, this is not... These are big decisions people make to say, I'm going to trust you with my story and uh, I'm going to tell you what I witnessed. And I have interviews with, you ask about method, I tape with their knowledge. So in 50 years, somebody's going to get these boxes of hundreds of hours of interviews and some graduate student is going to look through it and is going to say, oh my God, that's, you know, that's a document. Oh, this is a, a witness. This is the person talking. And uh, it, it's a method 
that we used in the Nixon case, that I've used in the Supreme Court book or the Pentagon books or the war books or Obama books. And I know, I remember when doing an interview with Obama for the first book, uh, Bush, uh, Obama's wars about his decisions in Afghanistan. And near the end, he said, uh, you have better sources than I do. Now, that, that's not true, because, but I've been able to focus on this. And he actually said, have you ever thought of becoming the CIA director? <laughs> uh, it was not a job offer. I, I well, your files you. uh, probably rival Hoover's at this point. Pardon? Your, fi your files rival Hoover's at this point. No, no, <laughs> they're not like Hoover's. It's, they're not about somebody's personal life. They're about the business of government. Yeah. I mean, this is a very uh, serious undertaking, but you can get really close to what goes on. And uh, that has to do with trusting people, people trusting you. So I, uh, I understand the dynamic here. There's a kind of uh, Washington denial machine out there. Uh, and during Watergate, we called it the non-denial denial, and it, it sounds like a denial, but it really isn't. Not technically, not technically yeah. uh, untrue. Um, talk a little bit about how your method has evolved since, since Watergate. You get, you get your sources to come to your house, right? I wish I could get a source to come to my house. Well, you know, um, other than that you can and they'll do it, why do you do that? Well, uh, not just the, the real important uh, is to get to their house. Yeah. And uh, I frankly realized in doing some reporting on this that I was getting quite lazy. Yeah, I have people come over for dinner. It's nice. You chat. You, you, you advance the ball a little bit, but uh, there was a moment uh, in this when I called somebody from the White House at home at 11 o'clock and said, uh, you know, you said we'd talk. Yeah, 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 we will. You know, the brush off happens all the time. Post, yes, yes, we'll do it. Oh, I said, well, how about now? And he said, now, are you crazy? It's 11 o'clock at night. And I said, well, I'm four minutes from your house. And he said, how do you know where I live? And I said, that's easy. That's the easy part. Okay, come on over. And then you, there's a natural comfort people have in their own home. You ask, do you have any documents? No, no, I, I don't take any documents from the White House. And then uh, in the third interview, any documents? Well, yeah, let me go upstairs and check and come down with, you know, boxes of documents. It's uh, when we did the book on the Supreme Court yeah. uh, in 1970, uh, all the clerks, oh, never have documents. And of course, everyone, you don't clerk at the Supreme Court or work in the White House and not just take a little memorabilia home. <laughs> and uh, that kind of memorabilia or a diary, people have diaries and so forth. And so getting into the home is really important. And uh, it, it gives you potential access to the, the kind of uh, authoritative paperwork that will, it's very comforting to have somebody tell you something and then see a memo that says exactly the same thing. One more question about this, but I want to open it up for questions, and there are microphones on either side. We're, we're, um, as he said, we're taking questions live, not on, not on note cards today. Um, so if you line up, we'll call in a second. But just as a, to, f to follow up that, that point, Bob, while, while people uh, get ready to ask, um, in All the President's Men, which I've reread recently, there's, there's some different method. You sometimes surprise people by knocking on their doors at, at night. And a lot of the reporting comes through discomfort. What you're describing sounds more like a process of getting people 
very comfortable. So that is there is discomfort still a part of your process, or is no, it more? Yeah, but it starts as discomfort, and then it transitions to comfort. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened in All the President's Men. I remember one of the Bush books going, there was a general who would not talk and kept um, n nagging him, emails, intermediaries, nothing, found out where he lived in the Washington area, went to his house without an appointment, knocked on the door, and he opened the door and looked at me and said, are you still doing this shit? <laughs> And he meant it. And, uh, but then you learn, uh, uh, CIA people always said, you have to let the silence suck out the truth. So I just poker faced and he looked at me, got a disappointed look, uh, I think in himself, cause, uh, come on in and talked for a couple of hours and helped immensely. Uh, lesson there, we're not showing up. I think our method is, uh, driven us to the internet more and kind of, oh, what, what's your comment on this? And I know people will sit in the White House, you ask a question and they have six deputy press secretaries. Well, gee, that sentence is too revealing. Let's, let's launder it. And so you wind up getting BS. I can't not ask you, how do you compare the Trump of fear to the Nixon of the final days? Uh, there are scenes in there right after Mueller is appointed where uh, Trump is just beside himself and you, you see him in the White House and he, he doesn't sit down. He's just on his feet all, almost all the day going from the Oval Office to the dining room where he has his television. He's watching these TiVoing things. Uh, you know, how, how did this happen? How did, now there's a special counsel investigating me. They're gonna look at my finances. And, and uh, one of the people likens it to Nixon's final days, that it's in the paranoid zone. It's, it, it's, um, it's pretty scary. And Trump, says, you know, I'm the president of the United States. I can fire anybody I want. I, I have this authority. Well, actually, he does. Yeah. I think the, the uh, real, one of the questions pulsing through this is what does it mean? And I think one of the things it means is that uh, this is, a, and when I, when Trump called last month, I said this to him, we are at a pivot point in history. And he said, right. And we, we are, really are at a pivot point in history. And uh, that um, we better really think about where all this is going, what, uh, who, who's in charge, who has authority, how is presidential power being exercised, what is the, is there an oversight of this process? And uh, it's a time to, because there's this contest for what's true, and he's launched almost daily a war on truth, and that's, that's not great for democracy. In, in 1974, through Watergate, we, we, we had a crisis, and the system worked, system yeah. triumphed. Yeah. What's your level of confidence in the system this time? And I'm sorry, I'm going to get to the question yeah, right after you, this. You, ha you have to have confidence in it. But the system only works when people uh, rise above party. And uh, in the case of setting up the Senate Watergate Committee in early 1973, Senator Irvin, who was the chairman, the only, all that they had were the stories that Carl and I had written and uh, some investigation Teddy Kennedy's subcommittee had done. And I remember going to see Senator Irvin. He called me up and said, we'd like your sources. And I said, I, you know, I can't do that. And he said, well, we're gonna go ahead. And the resolution passed 77 to zero. Dozens of Republicans voting for that to investigate their president. I think in the Senate today, if you uh, had a resolution to say, let's keep the colors in the American flag, you would not get a 77 to zero 
vote. There would be some objection yeah. from some place. All right, um, let me ask you to make your questions brief and to the point and avoid any editorializing, and let's start on this side. Yes. Hello, hi. Thank you, Mr. Woodward, for, I'm a huge admirer. I'm a student of journalism. Um, I'm from Brazil, and this year we're gonna have presidential elections, as you know, next month. And a true problem that I'm observing there is uh, people are starting to become very true believers in, well, their politics and their ideology or even their ideas. And I think um, from your experience, both of you, uh, what, uh, how can journalism improve in the sense of like showing the facts, like even if people are really true believers? Uh, well, get it right and that uh, takes time. And, uh, you know, true believers, uh, there are lots of them on lots of sides of politics. Uh, my just temperamental attitude is, you know, be suspicious of true believers, but... Um, but your way of dealing with an environment in which, which people increasingly choose which uh, truth to believe is to carry on and, and pursue the truth and not address, not try to solve that problem because you can't? That's a better answer. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, All right, this side. I want to thank you and bless you and hope it's the tipping point. That's for your new partner. Um, today, one of the spawn, I think it was Eric, said that you, it was Beavis or Butthead, one of those people said that you did this for the shekels, which some of us feel is anti-Semitic. Since I don't think you're Jewish, except for hanging out with Carl Bernstein, could you please comment on that? Uh, in, you know, uh, uh, factually, I am not Jewish, um, but I, the, the idea that anyone would talk like that, I just, you know, I, we, we shouldn't have uh, comments like that from anyone, and uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's unfortunate, but I, I think you can't uh, kind of overreact to it. I think you kind of have to say, okay, uh, what does it mean? What did, uh, you know, what did Eric Trump do? Who is he? And there you know, still lots of questions about that in the uh, investigation. So I'm not, I'm not worried. And I think this kind of taking the emotion expressed by somebody else and having an emotional reaction to it uh, gets you off track. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Woodward, it's a privilege, thank you. Um, do you anticipate any of the people you've discussed coming forward before the 2020 election? It seems that if they're that concerned about the fate of the country, they would want to speak out before he gets another four years. Well, people have spoken out in, in this book. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I, I, it, it's important to not get tangled up in, gee, is somebody gonna write an editorial without specifics uh, in the New York Times? <clears throat> I think that's not the real issue. I think is what's authoritative, what's going on? I mean, there, you, you said at one point something happened in the book and your jaws in the, uh, on the floor. I think there are about 10 or 15 in the, in the book. Agree. <coughs> um, since many people think that Trump is a threat to our national security, mm -hmm. do you believe that you know GOP politicians, influential ones like Ryan and Ryan and McDon McConnell, <coughs> are traitors to our country? Uh, no, look, they, they you know we have the political system, and see that's the the but he word. But has access to the nuclear weapon. Yeah, I, I, that should be taken away from him. Okay, Thanks. well, that, 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 uh, that's your view. I think the remedy is to not use Trump's language about other people. I just, I think that, uh, I, you know, you can be critical of people and this let's jack up the rhetoric atmosphere, I think is... Well, it hasn't needed to be let's given. Okay, we know... We're trying to get quite a few. We, we know what you think. Yeah. Let's, let's, to the Russians. Um, let's come back over here. Thank you. Sorry. Obviously, Trump is still president. The Mueller investigation is still going on. I was wondering, when did you know that you were done with this book when you can settle on, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm done? And yeah. <laughs> also, too, 
any roadblocks you had in this Friday when you're, you had a lead and you thought you were there, but you couldn't get the sources to completely fulfill the story? Yeah. Do you work in publishing? No, <laughs> because I'm a student. It's, it's a great question, and the answer is, uh, on something like this, you're, in a way, never done, but you have to cut it off and say you've got enough information. I have the wonderful benefit of a support system at the Washington Post where I still work, uh, at Simon & Schuster, the publishers, and you know, they are, all these people say, I, you know, they say individually and collectively, uh, we have your back and dig into these things. And there also is just a quality when you've got about 350 pages, that's a book. And uh, <laughs> sorry, it's yeah. that simple. Yeah. And will there be another Trump book? I mean, do you start the next one as soon as you finish? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you have, you have created precedent for this. Don't know. You know, you don't know. Where, you know who knows the end of this story? Or, uh, boy, I sure don't. Yeah. And um, so, you know, but we need to keep working, even when the book is done. <laughs> Thank you uh, for speaking. Uh, based on your uh, book and all the research and experience that you have, what do you think is possible that could happen as a result of the investigation? And do you think it's possible that nothing can happen? In other words, like nothing will happen. In the Mueller investigation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, sometimes nothing happens. Uh, in the, the book, John Dowd, who is Trump's lawyer for eight months who eventually resigns because he's trying to convince Trump you can't testify because uh, you won't tell the truth. <laughs> you are incapable of, t I mean, isn't that, I mean, that, that, that's a stunning. It seemed like he went there with Trump. Yeah, yeah, he, they had a practice session in the White House, which is one of the most uh, fascinating things I've ever written. And you, here, John Dowd, the lawyers, playing Mueller and asking Trump questions, and Trump lies or makes things up or goes ballistic, and finally says, "See, you can't testify." And, and Trump says, "You mean I'm not a good witness?" <laughs> he said, "No, you are a terrible witness. Uh, you, I, you know, there's a legal obligation." for a lawyer to not, as he said, I can't sit next to you and let you lie or fall into a, a perjury trap. And it's, it, it's, uh, it's quite moving. And the, the final uh, line of the book is uh, Dowd concluding, but not wanting to insult Trump, but concluding, uh, you're a fucking liar. Yeah. And um, it's, a, it's a, one of those moments where you go, wow, that's, uh, you know, that's the lawyer. <laughs> that's the guy on his side. Same. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that's the guy he's paying. Yeah. 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 $100,000 a month, uh, which is, you know, pretty good for Trump, and at least he paid it for. A month, I understand. <laughs> the rare bill he paid, yes. Sir. Did any of your sources, in all their months alone with Trump in the White House, describe any private moments with him when he might have, just for a moment, confessed to his deepest fears? I mean, the obvious fear is that the Mueller investigation will lead to his impeachment, but fears of being you know, betrayed as a Russian mole or a Russian tool. <laughs> Fears, fears of, of, uh, of being I, indicted. I, you know, if that tax. had happened, I think I might have included <laughs> it in the book. So nobody ever described any private moment in which, in which Trump confessed to his own fears about where this might end up, even losing the respect of his kids or something. Well, no, but there are moments where he uh, 
displays intense anxiety about the investigation. They're, you know, it's gonna go on forever. They're gonna look at everything. They're gonna look at my finances and so forth. And he also acknowledges to people in the book at times, and those people are named, that uh, maybe Jared Kushner, uh, his son-in-law, should not be there uh, working in the White House, that there's too much of a conflict uh, potentially. And so, but uh, the moment of, see the, the Mueller investigation is, and it's the lawyer John Dowd who concludes that Mueller played him Dowd and Trump for suckers yeah. to get them to turn over all the evidence and the documents and the witnesses. And there is a telling moment where Dowd realizes, my God, we've been had. And he goes to Trump and he said, you were right. We can't trust Mueller. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, Mueller by, by all accounts is not, his office is not leaking. So that, that account has to come primarily from one side, and it's self-serving in the sense that Dowd's position is, we've been an open book, we've given you everything, but we don't, do we know that from Mueller's side? Do we know that Mueller feels they've been that cooperative? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting on it, and I uh, checked this uh, independently, right. and uh, so they, did give him, they, they did give him all this material, and uh, so, you know, that's, that's authentic. What's, what's interesting about Mueller in the book is he only uh, says a number of things to Dowd because most of the time he's just marble. He's just, you know, poker-faced. And, uh, but he does, when Dowd's pressing him, what are you looking for on the obstruction investigation? And Mueller, Mueller says, we want to find out if he had corrupt intent. Now that's the, the necessary part of an obstruction charge. And it's actually the right thing. And I think when Dowd heard this, he was, it was a bracing moment. Made it real that they were considering the possibility of bringing a charge like that. Or that that's, that was the investigative trail they were on. But somebody had, you know, is it possible this goes nowhere? Uh, I remember too well the big investigations after Watergate, the Iran-Contra and the Reagan administration, the Lewinsky-Whitewater investigation uh, in, under Clinton. And there were, I mean, somebody in my newspaper actually wrote a story saying Reagan was going to be indicted. And uh, I went back and looked at all of the investigations after Watergate and talked to Lawrence Walch, who was the independent counsel in that case, and he made it very clear to me he, was, he didn't even think Reagan was dirty and had uh, done anything illegal. So you can, these things can get all puffed up and you think it's uh, somebody's going to discover the crime of the century and they don't. You need a storytelling witness or tapes. Yeah. Yes. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, if I recall correctly, when Nixon was unraveling, didn't Al Haig give instructions to most everyone that no matter what Nixon said, Ray, nuclear weapons and all, they, it couldn't go through? I'm sure that today, but you have people like General Mattis and the Pentagon, as you said, it's country first, Kelly, that they wouldn't allow Trump to give an order of any type that would, they're real patriots, that would threaten the United States or the uh, world. I, that, that's a good question. I don't have uh, the definitive answer on that, but in Watergate, it wasn't Al Haig, the White House Chief of Staff, it was the Secretary of Defense, Schlesinger, yeah. who put out the word saying, if the president calls and said, launch, uh, call me first. <laughs> Do you believe that, having talked with these people like Mathis and Kelly and so on, that Trump could ever get to that point? That if he, if he wanted to distract something, or that he could, you know, they, they would stop him at some point? I don't know the answer to that. And, and you know, that's, what, that's a, 
a big, large question. It would depend on circumstances and you know what's what's going on. The reality is, though, the president has an incredible. There's a concentration of power in that office, and he can employ the force as he wants to. I remember talking to academics during the George W. Bush years and say, you know, the president can start a war like he, it has happened. He said, oh no, the Constitution is very clear that Congress has to declare war. And I tried to say, that's not the way it works. And, on, and I said, look, George W. Bush can invade Mexico tomorrow if he wants. And somebody stood up in agony and said, don't give him any ideas. <laughs> they have, presidents have incredible power. Yes, first of all, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I just hope that this book uh, will help uh, uh, end Trump's uh, term in office quicker than it should. Uh -huh. uh, and on that point, and other people have uh, uh, spoken about this, if you had to give odds on Trump lasting uh, two more years, uh, what, what, would the, what would you say the odds are uh, of, of him being uh, taken out of I, office? I, I have that written down, too. <laughs> uh, you are betting that this is uh, one of the uh, diseases of journalism. I'd be interested if you agree, where we want to report on the future, no. which, of course, we don't know. And uh, it, the future's real hard. It's a fair question, but to be honest uh, with you, I have no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> no. Deep in your heart. Um, I, uh, I, Deep in your heart, I think I, you do, but. I, I agree that's the best answer. You know, I think I, I, I hope I learned the lesson in 2016 that what I thought was going to happen with a, with a high degree of likelihood did not happen. And I think that showed the value of my predictions um, and the value of a lot of other people's predictions. And uh, so now when people ask me for a prediction, I disappoint, disappointingly try to offer some kind of analysis, um, but avoid the you prediction. You know, a good line is that one I used, easier to describe the creation of the universe. Yeah. <laughs> because it is. Yeah. You have enough. one. Um, I think let's take two more questions, and then we should let Bob sign some books. Um, but go ahead, please. Thank you. My question yeah. may sound a bit redundant after the last one, but I was going to ask you, when you lived through the whole Watergate crisis with Cole Bernstein, and you must have felt at some moment, had your aha moment, where you thought, wow, this is where the president is going down. How has your gut instinct served you now? I know it, it leads on to the, it, <laughs> it's in tandem with the other question, you know, yeah. what kind of timeline, but- Can I give can the same answer <laughs> I, to, no, to this no, side of the room more, that I gave over there? A little more, because my fear also is that obviously time works against us and the longer this goes on, the longer a lot of these abnormalities tend to become the norm and uh, we find ourselves deeper and deeper. So uh, basically, is how, what's your gut been telling you the difference between but, but you see, uh, I try not to operate on my gut. In, 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 <laughs> in Watergate, uh, Carl realized at a moment, he said, my God, this, uh, Nixon's going to be impeached. And we'd written a story about his closest aide, John Mitchell, campaign manager, attorney general, controlling a secret fund for Watergate and other uh, espionage and sabotage activities. And uh, Carl turned around and said, this guy's going to be impeached. And I said, I, I agree, but we can never use that word in the newsroom because people will think we're on some sort of crusade. Right. And for one year, we never used that word. And so I would uh, apply the same caution now about what we think this is going to lead to that or that. Uh, uh, the answer is we don't know. But the job of journalism is to, uh, I don't know that Trump actually does read whether he would read a copy of this book. I heard for a while I couldn't get a copy at the White House. The, <laughs> the Simon and Schuster security was so great. Uh, but I think if he, 
I'm sure he would be very upset, upset because it's a penetration of his business. It says, this is what he does, this is what he thinks, this is the nature of the conflict, and so forth. And I've stepped back as a journalist and say, that's all we can try to do. And then the political system will take over and do what it's going to do. And uh, even though there's a lot of anger at the political system and a lot of uh, a sense of disappointment, if not betrayal, uh, it, it kind of works. And that's, that's what we have. And so I'm not, uh, not writing odds about anything or uh, you know, examining my gut. I'm, <laughs> Hey, I, and I love it when they open the door and say, are you still doing this? <laughs> because the answer is yes. <laughs> Let's make this the last question, and I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them, yeah. but please go ahead. Good evening. On The Daily yesterday, you alluded to some of the events that, that came out of your reporting on Watergate. So avoiding the, the, the prior questions, um, what do you think are some takeaways from this book that we can bring out to our representatives and congressmen and women to alleviate the fear? Uh, well, I mean, that's obviously up to you, but this is, as I say in the early, in the prologue, that there's a nervous breakdown of executive power, and having a government with a nervous breakdown, I mean, do you agree this describes a nervous breakdown on a good number of levels. And it's something very different from the kind of chaos, confusion, disorganization that has come up in, in many other White Houses. Yes, I, I agree. It's a, it's, a, it's a breakdown of every kind of code of, of, of normal behavior in a, in a presidential administration. And so, you know, that's what it is. And uh, it's... Um, and, you know, I mean, last, I don't, can I tell one story? I mean, this goes back to Watergate, but it was a great lesson. Uh, in January 73, Carl and I had written all these stories. People didn't believe them. And Catherine Graham, the publisher, owner of the Washington Post, invited me to lunch. And I knew her. She'd supported the publication of the uh, stories and go into her lunchroom and, and she starts quizzing me about Watergate and, and blew my mind with what the boss knew. She at one point said, oh, she'd read something about Watergate in the Chicago Tribune. And I thought, what the hell is she <laughs> reading the Chicago Tribune for? No one in Chicago does. But, <laughs> but Catherine was, you know, sucking in all the information of management style I later described as mind on, hands off. She didn't tell us how to report or what to do. And so we get to uh, an important moment and she said, well, when is all the truth gonna come out? And I said, well, there's a cover-up going on. The investigation's weak. They're paying the burglars for their silence. Carl and I go knock on doors at night and Nixon had just won a massive re-election. Uh, and uh, so my answer is never. And ne I'll never forget the look on her face when I said never. And she, she said, pained, wounded look. She said, never? <laughs> Don't tell me never. I left the lunch a highly motivated employee. <laughs> but the statement was not a threat. It was a statement of purpose. And what she said was, look, we, uh, we, we signed up for this. Journalism is high risk. We believe our sources. And, uh, and then she said, why, why do you think we do this? And I didn't have an answer. And she gave an answer to her own questions. And it's a brilliant answer. She said, because that's the business we're in. 
we have, we believe what we've got here. We have to triple, quadruple our effort to get to the bottom of this and gave a kind of, let's go ahead. I uh, left the lunch highly motivated. I was 29 years old at the time. And, and I thought, my God, the boss really understands the necessity of risk. It doesn't mean you aren't sure. It means that you're taking on the highest authority in the country by yourself, essentially. So someday we're going to put a plaque in the lobby of the Washington Post, even though uh, Bezos owns the Washington Post now and the Grahams are not there. I, I think he would approve of this, but we're going to drill it in so no one can take it out. And it's <laughs> going to be a plaque that will just begin, quote, and it will say, never, don't tell me, never, end quote. <laughs> Catherine Graham. Yeah. Um. Uh, well, that is a great note to end on and, and one I can heartily support. Um, Bob, it's, it's an honor to talk to you about the new book. And I want to thank everybody for the great questions and for being here. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Books in the next room. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.